You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. My name's Casey. Um, if, uh, if you didn't know that, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you were expecting something from Mark, uh, you, you should have. We're, we're actually throwing a curveball. Um, it's baseball season. I can say that. Um, but uh, we actually, I, I want to bring you in uh, on really how, how God's word has been ministering to me. And so if you've been with us uh, for a while, um, and you've heard me reference med- meditating on Philippians 4 uh, several times. And so really, I'm just kind of bringing you in on, on a quiet time. And in one way, I'm just kind of telling you this because I want to show you how it's ministered to me uh, in times of uncertainty, in times of uh, just fear, uh, in times of anxiety. Uh, but also how it, it's been leading me and how I'm, I'm asking uh, that you would consider it might be leading us. And then when we get to the end of all of this, and I realize it is a lot of verses. Uh, when we, and so parts of it we're going to slow down on, parts of it we're going to move uh, kind of quickly on, just kind of get an overview, uh, because we got to get to the end to celebrate baptisms. And so, uh, man, it's, it's a time that we get to witness what God told us, what Jesus told us to do to show new life. To, to stand up and say, listen, I now stand with Jesus. I believe Jesus entered into humanity. He lived a life I couldn't live. He obeyed all the commandments of God. He faced temptation and didn't have sin. And then he died in my place. And if I die with him and he's resurrected, then I will be resurrected with him. It is the picture that shows crossing from death to life. And so we get to end with a, a lot of yelling and celebrating. And, and so uh, if you have kids and kids uh, during communion, we'd ask you to go get them uh, because we want them to see baptism. So they might ask questions. And if that's scary for you and you don't know how to answer those questions, you need to work on it. Uh, I mean, you need to work on it. Answer those questions. Forever, my kids uh, were terrified of baptisms. I mean, it, we had the trough, and all of a sudden, people got dunked in that thing. They came up kind of like they needed air. Swimming itself was kind of scary, and then everybody just yelled. And so, I mean, it's very Mad Max-ish. Um, some of you know that movie, so. But I, I, I actually want to show this because I want you to see it. I, I uh, one of your pastors, am, am just a person. Like, I'm a real person. And I know some of you, that's not astonishing. You're like, yeah, we kind of hope for more. But like, I am a real person. I wanted to say I'm a real man, but that just sounded too conceited. Uh, I'm well beyond being just a real boy. And that's Pinocchio's line anyways. And I just had a birthday. I am well beyond uh, being a boy. Well beyond. Um, I actually can't even call myself a young man anymore officially. I looked it up. I am, I've been beyond that for a little while. And so I am a, I'm a middle-aged, balding man who you just believe that I cut my hair short, right? And I'm also your pastor. And I just say that because I want you to know that I, I need to live by the disciplines of grace like all Christians need to live. That, that means that when, when things come against life that start to threaten faith, not that destroy your faith, but when weight comes, what it does, like suffering and doubt, what it does, it erodes faith. 
And so like, what are the disciplines that we do? Like some theologians call them the disciplines of grace. It's where we turn to the Lord, we give voice to the depth of us, and we just say, God, I need you to talk to me here. And we go to the scriptures and we study the scriptures and we meditate upon them, which means we go to it often and regularly. And we just say, listen, if I don't have words from you, I have nothing. Um, not a, a discipline I do often, but I did do some in this season, also the discipline of fasting. And really, I mean, it, you know, I, I usually do fasting really poorly because I have a bad attitude, you know. I'm just like, God, I'm suffering for you. Um, but every once in a while, I, I, get, I, I get it right where I just say, this is all I know. I actually think I need the words of God more than I need food. And, um, and so just Philippians 4 has been such a, such a gift to me. Um, and you might ask, you know, why share this? You know, does Mark have nothing for us? Mark has a lot for us. We're going to be there for a while. Buckle up. But why share this? Because Christians, when we face uncertainty, or when we find brokenness inside of us or outside of us, we're to go to the scriptures and we're to go to God and we're to talk about those. We're to go to God's people and share on a real level, like this is where I am. And we're to go expecting God to speak to us. This is what we do when we find ourselves tired or anxious or fearful or uncertain or disappointed. We'd go to the scriptures and we go to God's people to find comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The God of all comfort who comforts us in our time of need so that we might comfort those in theirs. And so I want to show you just some truths um, that God feel, I feel like he's been hammering in my heart in some ways that I think he's leading us and as we brought other leaders in. And uh, really all I'm doing is I've been applying the questions that if you're in the Bible reading plan, if you ever look at it, we've got questions right there. If you're in a city group, uh, the, the questions that your city group leader uses, and you know, just kind of, the questions really, I mean, there, there's more of them, but if I was just gonna kind of, the top three, it's just this, like you look at the passage and you just say, what does this passage say? What does it teach me? What does it tell me about God? What does it tell me about myself? What does it tell me about sin or the gospel? Like we categorize a little bit. What does it say to me? And then this question, this is a scary one. What does it ask of me? How would it lead me? Where would it take me? What would I repent from? What would I be encouraged? What would I need to believe beyond what I feel? And so here we go, verse one. Verse one, Philippians four, verse one. And so it says, therefore, my brothers whom I love, I long for my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul is writing this most likely from a prison cell. It's one of the prison epistles. There's arguing about which one. But look at all the I love you language. Like, what does this teach me? Paul loved the Philippian church. I know you're like, man, that is some brain science right there. Write that down. He loved this church. Like, look at this. My brothers whom I love, whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Like, that is a lot of love language in one sentence. This is like if you take the love language test and you get to the end of it, you're like, all of them. I need you to do all of them. You need to take the test again because you can't do all of them all the time. 
But look at all that he says. It's kind of sappy. Like, it's kind of sappy. Like, dang, Paul, like, you know, just say, what's up, brother? I mean, it's kind of sappy. And if you know anything about the history of this church, you know that he never even planned to start it. You know, if you have your, your finger flipping, you can flip over to Acts. You're going to actually read Acts 16, and you don't have to flip there. I'm just going to give you an overview. But it tells us how the Philippian church got started, and it wasn't Paul's plan A. It wasn't his plan B. It wasn't something he dreamed about doing, about going to Macedonia, going to the city of Philippi to start a church, other than it was a dream that led him there. But it wasn't what he set out to do. It wasn't even near the priority of his life. I mean, he was planting churches, but he tried to go a lot of other places. So in Acts 16 and verses uh, 1 through uh, 5, what you have is you have Paul and Silas. They meet up with Timothy. And so Timothy was a teenager, like a young man. And he uh, was like, hey, I want to follow after you. He had a, a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. And so they circumcised him. That is commitment on the front end. And he starts to follow them. And so they're just brand new. And so what happens is he plans to go to Asia. Paul had plan A. I'm going to Asia. We're going to plant churches in Asia. And it says that the Holy Spirit forbid him. He didn't tell us how, but what happened was plan A was Asia and the Holy Spirit led his life. No, that's not it. So then he said, we'll just go to Bethina. And the Holy Spirit, it says this, did not allow them. We don't even know what that looked like, but he was certain that's not where we're supposed to go. And so then he took a nap. He was sleeping and he had a vision of a Macedonian man saying, hey, you need to come help us out. So he wake up and he says, hey, it's not plan A, it's not plan B. The dream says we need to go start a church in Macedonia. And the dream was ironic because when he got there, he couldn't find any men. He started this church with women. And so what you have is in verses 6 through 10, he's deciphering how God is going to lead him. And the Holy Spirit did lead him. And then we have in verses 11 through 15, what happens was Paul was acting in his normal custom. He would go to a city and he would go to the synagogue and he would meet faithful Jewish uh, uh, people and he would then convince them that Jesus was the Christ was to come. But the problem in Philippi is there, there's no synagogue. There's not enough Jews there, not enough faithful Jews to have a synagogue. So the practice was if there's not a synagogue to go outside the city and to go to a river. And so he knew the practice. So he goes outside the city gates. He goes down to a river and he finds a bunch of women and children having a prayer meeting. And so he just starts evangelizing them. And so the first Christian that we meet, the first person, the first convert, Christian number one, her name was Lydia and she was a wealthy businesswoman. She was a God-fearer, which means she was a Gentile, but she was following after Yahweh. And so he comes and he tells the story of Jesus, tells the story of his conversion. And she says, if you deem me worthy, I want to be baptized. And Lydia, this wealthy businesswoman became the basis of ministry for the Philippian church. And so then what happens is they start to go around the city and what we see is a demon-possessed girl who is a fortune teller. She starts following after Paul and starts saying, hey, listen, he, he's gonna proclaim to you the most high God, which, you know, right there, you're like, well, that's a good thing. If you were like meeting with someone and you wanted to tell them about Jesus, if a girl ran up and said, watch out, they're gonna evangelize you, you would not think that's helpful. 
And so what happened is that's what was happening, going around. And so finally, after several days of this, Paul turns around, casts the demon out, and you have Christian number two. Lydia, wealthy businesswoman, demon-possessed slave girl, now a Christian, but her owners saw that she couldn't tell fortunes anymore, which just right there, you need to know the world exploits. The world exploits. Sometimes our scar tissue works well for us. Like it makes successful, but it cuts deep. So they arrest Paul and Silas throw them in prison. And Paul and Silas, they've got some free time in prison, so they start worshiping God, and they're singing and praying. And there's an earthquake, and the doors come ajar and open up, and their bonds fall off. And, I mean, I don't know what kind of earthquake that is, but they, they, you know, the earthquake opens up the jail, and the jailer wakes up, sees that the gates are broken down, pulls out his sword to kill himself. And Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer was just flabbergasted. Why didn't you run? So he brings them into their house and he washes their wounds and he takes care of them. And he says, tell me about this God whom you serve. And he shares the story of Jesus and the jailer becomes a Christian. You know, right there, I just picture that church. Like we got, we got Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman. We got the slave girl and we got the jailer. Like think about their city group conversations. Like, I mean, Lydia could be like, man, I remember the first time I made a million dollars. I threw the biggest party. And the slave girl would be like, yeah, man, I was demon possessed. I stole from the party. And the jailer was like, I locked you up. And Paul was just like, my beloved whom I love and I long for, my joy and crown, my church. Paul loved this church. It wasn't plan A. It wasn't plan B. It was found in a dream, but it's not the dream that he made. Paul loved his church. Paul loved his church, but his church had conflict. Look at, look at verse two and three. Like, I, actually, I want that to sink in a little bit. Paul, the apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament his church had conflict. It makes me feel better. Okay, here we go. And so here we go. In verse 2 it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Sitike to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Like, I just want to point out several things here. Like, like, first off, like, how awkward is this? These letters were meant to be read, like, at church. And so, like, Paul calls them out in front of everyone. He says, Yodia, Syntyche, settle down. Like, there was a conflict that was going on. And, like, he calls them out from the stage. Like, how would you have felt? Like, you know, sometimes, like, when things get, like, you know, we, I go from high to lows. And when things get serious, I know, I mean, I know you feel like, I don't want to move because people think I'm guilty. You know, and you get real still. Like, it doesn't matter if you're still in that moment. They just called your name out. Like, can you imagine? Like, he doesn't, he calls them out, but, like, he doesn't take a side. 
Like, like look at verse 2. He doesn't say, hey, everyone knows Yodia is right and Syntyche is crazy. He doesn't ban anyone from the table. He doesn't take a side. Like, he knows what's going on. He knows there's conflict. But he says, this is not something to take a side on. And, like, if you know anything about the New Testament, Paul is not afraid to take a side. Like, First and Second Corinthians, oh, he's been taking sides. You've got Galatians 2. He's like, oh, Peter, I confronted him to his face. I went down to the mother church and I confronted him. Like he's not afraid to take sides, but he's like, hey, this conflict, I'm not going to say who's right or who's wrong. Man, I am. Um, I've actually, you guys have been such a huge blessing through this. Like, I mean, we, I, we, when I stopped by, um, I had soccer games, so I wasn't able to work with um, when we did uh uh, Habitat for Humanity, but I stopped by. And I know one of the leaders there, his name's Jonathan. And I was like, he's like, hey man, how's, how's pastoring the mobile church? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you guys are a moving target. You guys have been everywhere. And I was like, yeah, thanks for pointing that out, Jonathan. Um, <laughs> but I mean, we have, like, I mean, we jumped into podcasting. We jumped into house churches and pre-recording. We had people serve in all those areas. We went to a parking lot. And so we had a podcast church. We had a, a, a house church of sorts, 20 of them actually. And then we had a parking lot church. And now we have here church, you know, and we're so thankful for this. You know, and just something to say, you know, we're working to get back into central. And I'm just going to ask you this. Pray that God would open those doors or would open a different door. And so what we see is we see conflict. We see conflict. He doesn't take sides. But he does tell him this in verse 2. He says, agree in the Lord. Actually, look at it. He says, I entreat you, Euodia. I entreat you, Syntyche. Entreat means beg. I beg you. I beg you. The Apostle Paul begs them that they might agree in the Lord. Like that phrase, like what does that mean? It can't mean agree that God is real. Because we find out later that he is, they are Christians. They already, they already agree on that. And so what does it mean to agree in the Lord? It comes from two words that mean same mind. If you read all of Philippians, you find it in Philippians 2, verse 2, where he says we should have the same mind as Jesus. And so it says, have the same mind of the Lord. And so this is what I think. I think what it means when it says same mind. Because if we look at Philippians 2, the same mind as Jesus is Jesus lost. Jesus lost heaven to come to earth. And then Jesus lost his life to go to the cross. Like Jesus willingly lost at things. And I think when it's saying this, he's saying, take on the same mind of Jesus. You don't have to win. Agree that Jesus is worth it. Now listen, I'm not someone who um, is super good at like holding my tongue. Like, I mean, these things happen. Like words come out of my mouth and I'm like, oh, it's too late. I gotta grab them and they can't go back. And so there have been so many times where it's like, man, like this right here, like Jesus would say, I'm worth it. Settle down. And so like we see, like we see like the awkward situation. Paul doesn't take a side. He tells us to agree in the Lord. And then it gets even worse. Look at verse three. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He asks someone to get involved to help them. 
Now, true companion, it's possible, like the Greek, you know, people, sometimes names have meaning, they're hard to translate. It's possible, it's a name. Maybe it's like, you know, like a designated driver of sorts for relationships, I don't know. Like these things are possible, but whatever it is, Paul was speaking to someone to say, help them agree. Everyone would have known, yeah, they should help them agree. Sometimes the church family has to help one another. Sometimes we have to remind each other that Jesus is worth it. The gospel is primary. The scriptures are here to lead us in times where we don't know what to do. And so it keeps going. Look at verse three. It says, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. Like it's saying, sometimes we have to, we see, we have to step in to help. You know, what, what kind of dad would I be if um, Kinsey came and is like, listen, Cruz and Quinn are going at it. Like, oh, just let them work it out. She's like, Cruz has a bat. You know, I'd be like, ah, resourceful. You know, I mean, what kind of dad would I be? (laughs) All relationships have conflicts from time to time. Paul's church has some conflict. Like, Like right here, it's telling like, hey, it's a church issue to come together. But also notice that these women were significant leaders. Like look at verse 3. It says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. Like sometimes like conflict is just a normal part of life together. You know, I mean, good marriages and good families have conflict. It's just they know how to handle conflict or disagreements without seeing the other person as the enemy. You know, Song of Solomon, it's going to say, catch for us these foxes. The foxes that are destroying our relationship mean like, hey, there's something going on. You're not the enemy. These things are the enemy, even if they're cute little foxes. It doesn't say, catch for us these velociraptors. It says foxes, like they're cute, but they can apparently do some damage to your vineyard. And so he's asked others to get involved. They were significant leaders. It's reminding us that it's saying, I love you so much. I'm willing to enter in and fight for you, for us, not against you. You are not my enemy. You are precious. And then notice this last thing in verse 3. He is certain that they are saved. He says, whose names are written in the book of life. He's certain. I mean, that means, like, I mean, it seems like, you know, when you have, like, a social media world, like, if you've got to fit in more and more narrow and anyone outside of what this narrow thing is, you're like, man, I don't even know if they're a Christian. Paul would say, that's crazy. And so we see that Paul loved this church. This church was imperfect. They had conflicts. But look at it, man. This church also struggled with depression, being reasonable, and anxiety. Like this is actually, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this is actually where I started. You know, because I just felt anxious um, I didn't, I was trying to, what is reasonable? How am I supposed to act? And, and I started here, and God certainly led to a lot of truths and just kind of like, what does it say? You know, what do I see here? It was actually everything before and after it where I felt like God was really pouring in. But just a couple highlights. Like, first, this tells us you're always going to have to fight for joy. You will not get beyond in your spiritual life where you just always have it and you don't have to fight for it. Look at verse 4. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Like you're commanded, I'm commanded to fight for joy. And the question is why? And the answer is because sin steals joy. And the lack of joy, it leads you to more sin. This is, this is, 
This is a small boy who gets bored, and you should know that's dangerous. Not, this isn't even small. This is anyone in the male species that gets bored, and you should know that that's dangerous. And so what happens is, like, we have to fight for joy. How? Name them. Name them. Speak them. God, you are good in this. You have been good in the past. This is how you're good right now. Whether it's just a sunset or just a small reality, start to name them. Start to take them. God, Start to tell other people around you, God's people, man, this is where God is being good. Whatever you feed will grow. Whatever you starve will shrink. But the problem is the natural disposition of our flesh is to focus on what we don't have and to feed it with our mind and to look at it and to think about it and to look at the other side and assume other people have it and be like, I can't believe they have it and I don't. Like that's the natural disposition. Whatever you feed will grow. Whatever you starve will shrink. You will always have to fight for joy. You will always have to fight for gentle reasonableness. Look at five. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Listen, if you looked at that in the New Living Translation, it would say, let your consideration be known to everyone. If you looked at that in the Holman Standard Bible, it would say, let your graciousness be known to everyone. If you looked at that in the NIV, it would say, let your gentleness be known to everyone. Like, it appears that it is a difficult word to translate. And so I just think the best thing is to look at that and say, okay, I'm going to have to fight for reasonableness. I'm going to have to fight for consideration of others. I'm going to have to fight to be gracious. I'm going to have to fight to be gentle when things are pressing in. Like, I think a great translation would be to say, I'm going to have to fight for a gentle forbearance toward others. Gentleness. It doesn't say let your, let your know-it-all attitude be you know, evident to everyone. It doesn't say let let your awesome theology be known to everyone. I am a fan of theology. I went to school for it. I have a degree, all right? I'm a fan of it. It says, let your gentle forbearance toward others be known to everyone. It's the opposite of being contentious or touchy or combative or argumentative. Um, And so it says, man, you're always going to have to fight for joy. You're always going to have to fight for a gentle reasonableness. You're always going to have to fight to remember that God is present. Look at verse 5. It says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That, That means here, like present Like he knows, like this is not an accident. Like God is not contact, you know, contacting the operation department and saying, do you see what's going on around here? Mask. I mean, he's not freaking out about it. He says, listen, God is at hand. You know, if you believe that God has abandoned you, you should be afraid and you should question everything that's around you. But if you believe that God is with you, place you here in this time around these people for your good and his purposes. That is taking Acts 17, 26 through 27 and Romans 8, 28. Is God at hand? Man, there have been so many times like along, I'm like, this this feels crazy. Is God at hand? And it had to be like, the God of the universe is Acts 17 true 
that the God of the universe has placed me in this time, in this place, among these people. And he said that it is for good. It is for his glory. You're good. Like, if that's true, it's always true. And then verse 6. You will always have to fight fear and anxiety. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, this is an entire sermon. And so I'm, I'm just going to say a couple things to it, and it's going to be disappointing. Um, so be ready for that. How do you fight fear and anxiety? Like, what is worry and anxiety? We, we, we worry and we get anxious when we imagine a future in a terrible way. It, it, it's looking at the present and it's not, it's not practicing thankfulness. It's not fighting for joy. It's accentuating all that is wrong. And then we take what is wrong and we multiply it out with the years for a future that is void of God. God is not at hand. He is absent and everything else is ruling the day. And then we act out of that. Like that is what produces anxiety. I'm actually anxious just talking about it. It's looking at your life and the future in a way that says God is not at hand. It is denying the sovereignty of God or declaring him to be uncaring. It, it's giving yourself to an atheistic life. It's all up to me. Like there couldn't possibly be a reason that God would do something like this. So it must be like God, like I fell off his map. It's looking at your life in a future with God not present. It's believing that here is no loving God at hand. It's believing that there is no loving God who holds the future. And so giving disbelief a name in the same way of how you fight for joy is give it a name and then search for the promises of God that are more true and more real than what we feel. And then express thanks everywhere you can see it. And man, it's write it down and share it. And then one more thing in this section. Look at verse seven. It says there's a supernatural peace of God that is available now. Look at it. It says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I feel like I'm gonna sneeze. Hold on. <laughs> which is a scary thing these days, you know? Um, okay, it passed. <clears throat> this, this is saying, like, this is actually something that was so encouraging. Like, this, this is saying, um, it's also disheartening, encouraging and disheartening. So, mer you know, merge those things together. This is saying, I'm not going to grow beyond fighting for joy or fighting for reasonableness or gentleness or fighting to remember that God is here or fighting fear and anxiety. I'm not going to get beyond that and then have the supernatural peace of God. It's a promise that I can have the supernatural peace of God in the fight. Like, let that sink in for a second. You can have that in the fight, that you can grow in a certainty that God is here and God is present. And you can look at the cross and you can say, if Jesus stayed on the cross, what do I think is going to remove, him from, remove me from his hand now? Like, there can be a certainty with that. Philippians 4 has much to say to us. It has much to say to me, and it has so much more. Look at verse 8 and 9. 
He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned or received or heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Like, we could say so many things about this, but if we're just kind of focusing on what is this telling us about this church that, that Paul loved, he loved the Philippians church, this church that had difficulty and conflict, this church that had, you know, struggled with depression and being reasonable and anxiety, like his church, it also tells us that this church also struggled to look at the right things sometimes. Like, there's not time for all of this, but this just comes back to like whatever you feed is going to grow and whatever you starve is going to shrink. And it's like, I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but like trying to watch what you eat. And you don't want to call it a diet because people get down on that. You need a lifestyle, not a diet. But it feels like a diet because there's a lot of things I'm not eating. What happens is there's not like instant like change. Like it takes a long time and it takes longer when you, when you get older and you can't call yourself a boy or a young man anymore. Like when I was wrestling, I could lose like nine, 10 pounds in a week, no problem. It just doesn't work like that anymore. And it's sad. You should be sad for me. It's sad. <laughs> the change doesn't happen suddenly, but it does happen. What is God doing that's beautiful? What is God doing that's, that's remarkable? What is honorable? What is just? What is pure? Look in those things. Study those things. Write those things down. Share those things. And sometimes we're afraid to share them because, like, man, if I speak it out loud, it might like evaporate and go away. Don't be scared. Don't be scared. Thank God every step of the way. Where there's a little bit of growth, thank him and ask for more. Where you see potential that is happening inside your soul, thank him and ask for more. This is saying whatever is good out there, look at it. Thank God for it. And look at the end. The God of peace will be with you. It just says the same promise that we just had in verse 7. Finally, the Philippian church partnered with Paul to spread the gospel. Look, look at these 10 verses, and we're not going to unpack them, but we're going to do some of it. But look at this. This is the end of the book. You know, it's the end of the letters. You feel like you can just skip them. It's like the genealogies, like in the New Testament or Old Testament. When you get to them, you're like, I can't say any of those names. I'm just going to skip it, right? Like the end of the book, you just want to skip. And actually, when I was meditating on it, I didn't even look at this for like a month. Like I was like, that's a waste of time. But then I read it, and man, listen, just listen to this. Verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. You might know this first. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, I can find joy whether I have a lot or a little. I can find faith whether I have a lot or a little. I can find God's hand in my life, whatever the circumstances. And it doesn't mean that he didn't have to fight for it. He already told us how to fight for it. And so Paul is saying whatever it is, but up at the top of this in verse 10, 
He says, you revived your concern for me. See, the Philippians letter, it's one of the happiest letters in the New Testament. The Philippians letter, it's this, it's a thank you letter because they partnered with him and send gifts to take care of him. And so he's getting to the end. He's like, man, I can't believe you found me. I can't believe you sent money. You guys aren't even rich, but you did it anyways. I can't believe it. And then look at this, verse 14. Spells it out even a little bit more plainly. It was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, meaning when you received the gospel, when the church started, in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you alone. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. And once and again, he says, you have partnered with me in these incredible ways. And if we know some things about the Philippian church, it wasn't a wealthy church. You know, when, um, when I... Uh, I mean, I, I love, when I talk to my pastor friends, I love to brag on you guys because you guys are a ton of fun. Um, and I'm like, hey, listen, I mean, we have a young church and uh, you just offer young people a meal and it's like they tear up. They're like, oh my gosh, I've been eating ramen. Oh my gosh, I thought I was gonna die. And I'm like, it's so easy to wow them, you know? And then I, when I tell them about, you know, they'll call, hey, what you got going on? I'm like, oh man, we got premarital counseling. And I tell them how much premarital counseling I'm doing or, or how many weddings we're doing. My pastor friends, they tear up for me like, oh my gosh, are you doing okay? I'm like, man, it's kind of the same script, you know? Do you, do you party, you know? And so I'm like, yeah, it's fun. Um, man, and, and then I look, I look around, you're not, we're not rich, you know? I mean, I mean, I don't know. If you're rich, show me you're rich. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I look around, and so like the, the, the Philippians, Paul looking at the Philippians said, man, you met us at every corner. We were in Thessalonica, and you met us there. And now I'm in jail, and you found me again. Like, you met us there. Like, you've given out of poverty. You've been so faithful, like this partnership. And then he goes on, look at this. Not that I seek the gift but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, we, we could spend so much time talking about, uh, especially in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, talks about giving. But this is how it paints the picture of giving. It talks about money and possessions as seeds. And if you take all the seeds and you put them in one pile, what happens? Nothing happens. But if you take the same seeds and you cast them out and you spread them out, what happens? Stuff grows. People get fed. And it talks about it in ways like when we have talked about money, it, I always want to dumb it down because I'm like, well, I mean, we, we're not in the prosperity gospel. We against that. You know, I'm trying to dumb it down and pull away. And I'm always just scared. The promises of God about giving actually scare me. I've experienced them, but they actually scare me. And, and so... He says this. He says, but I don't, I don't seek the gift. I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And then he says this, verse 18. I have received full payment and more, and I'm well supplied after receiving from Aphrodite the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The Philippian church wasn't rich, but it partnered with Paul to expand the gospel like, this is what the church does. 
And so this is where um, I just want to tell the story. And I'm going to tell you where we're at. Actually, I'll tell you what we're going to ask. Um, I'm going to ask us for the next month to pray about giving generously to a church partner in Fethier, Turkey. But this is, this is the story. It was around December. Um, I mean, if you remember December, man, numbers are going up. It's kind of scary. It's also dark. And so, you know, seasons of oppression, all that stuff's happening. Um, all the students left. And, uh, man, it was just hard. Like, uh, man, I found myself just like, I mean, I found myself kind of depressed. And that's why I started reading Philippians 4. You know, you know don't be anxious. I'm like, God, I'm trying. Um, and so I start meditating on this. And I, I kind of, man, I was just tired. Um, I was tired just of a lot of things. And I felt like God started to put on my heart, you know, just maybe out of desperation, like, man, maybe we need to start doing like a, a campaign. You know, like, do a month-long campaign, try to raise $100,000. I know some of you are like, oh my gosh, I mean, but it's not as hard as, well, I mean, it's not easy, but it's not as hard as you think. But like a month campaign to, to raise maybe $100,000, maybe do that for the next three years. So if God opened the door, uh, you know, uh, to walk through, whether we're getting a building or, you know, repurposing something, that we would have some money saved up for it. And so I've started to pray about that. I didn't really share it. It took me about a month before I started sharing with some other leaders. I mean, I'm kind of thinking about this. I want you to pray about it. But I'm thinking that, I mean, I, I, you know, I wasn't excited about it. It wasn't like, you know, man, it's gonna be so fun. Y'all ought to give us some money. You know, it, that's not fun. But I mean, that was on my heart. And so that had rested on my heart. And I really hadn't focused on the end of Philippians 4 yet. But then uh, come March, I'm actually in Colorado. I get a phone call from David Taylor. And so if you've been around Free City for any amount of time, um, you've probably heard the name David and Monica Taylor. You know, back up about five years ago, we were on Sunday night again in Vintage Church. And a guy showed up with a kid. And I thought, guy kid, maybe job, you know, and by that time we didn't have anybody with jobs. Like, I mean, you know, we had a campus missionaries and we had, you know, college students and we had retired people. And I was like, man, we need people with jobs. Okay. And so I talked to him after church, trying to get to know him. And he said, Hey, I'm a church planner. And I was like, "Ugh, <laughs> we already have those, you know, but then he starts to tell, he's like, and so he, they've been there about nine years, something like that. Starts to talk about what's happening and what they're doing. And man, I just became good friends with them. We love them. And so right now they are our biggest um, like single line item mission giving that we give monthly to. But we've also done a lot of things like, you know, through it. Like I, I just decided, I felt like God leading like, hey, I want him to like me more than any other pastor in the United States of America. And so we just, we want to help them. When they come home to see family, they're from Lawrence or, or David is. Like, we just want to help that, man. We don't want them to ever not be able to come home uh, because they, they don't have money. And we're like, man, we just want to, like, you're ours, you know? And so we always help that. Uh, there was a moment where they, the, the building that they're meeting in, it was a wreck. And so they had, this, it was like thirty dollars or $40,000, something like that, to raise money to renovate it. And so, man, we gave pretty big to that. You know, that was pretty early on. I was like, man, that has to happen. You know, the gospel started in that part of the world. We got to take it back. You know, that has to happen. And then there was a moment, this was recent, where um, they're like a, uh, they're like a, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of how, 
Um, they're like a nonprofit status, but if you buy it, you can become a foundation status, which gives you like some legal process in the state of Turkey or the country of Turkey. And so it costs about $30,000. We gave about $10,000 to that. And I went to some other X29 churches and I was like, hey man, I'm gonna get some money. Why don't you give some money? And so we helped raise that. And, you know, at Christmas, we give them a Christmas bonus. We, treat them, we try to treat them like a church staff, but like a really bad church staff member that never comes to staff meeting, you know? We just love them. We're impressed by what they're doing. And so in March, when he called, you know, we, we text back and forth a lot, but we don't talk on the phone a lot. So when he called, I was like, man, this is, I want to know what's going on. And uh, it's something we had talked about before, but uh, what's rising right now in Turkey is um, at an alarming rate, non-Turkish pastors and missionaries are getting kicked out of the country at an alarming rate, something they've never seen like this rate before. And there's a little, like, there's, there's, there's a little known fact that, you know, Turkey, to help increase uh, people to retire there and to bring money to help the economy... If you buy a piece of property that's $250,000 or more, whether it's a home or a condo or a church building, if you own a piece of property, you automatically get to the front of the line of citizenship. It fast tracks you to citizenship, almost guarantees it. And so the opportunity before us is the building that was renovated so many years ago that they've been using, they can buy for $250,000 that can secure them as citizens, he and his family, to keep the light of the gospel in Fethiye, Turkey. Now listen, God can crush all things. It's not like if this doesn't work, there's no hope for the gospel in Turkey. That's not true at all. But man, I think this is an invitation for us to say, man, I want to partner with God's work. And so like in this beautiful way, like when he told me about this, I literally started laughing. It was kind of like a laugh and a cry at the same time. And I was like, man, I thought God was putting a a capital campaign to buy a church so that we would have a church. But it's you all. I mean, it's just strange. Like in that moment, I was so certain. And so over the next This week included, so the next following three weeks, next four weeks, we're going to show you some videos. We're going to talk about it. If you go to our uh, website and you'll see a tab that says Turkey, it explains some of it. It has a link to GoFundMe. Um, The thing that makes this unusual, and if you have questions, we want to talk to more and more about it, is that David needs to own this, not the church, to make him and his family a citizen. And so if you go to that GoFundMe, so talking to our CPA, I was like, hey, I just, I'm too cute for jail, you know? I mean, I don't want to go to jail. And uh, it sounds so, te- it's, it just sounds like I might go to jail when I say, hey, I started a GoFundMe for a guy in the Middle East, you know? I mean, I'm like, I, you know? Um, and so working, they, you know, is there another way to do it? Um, he said, hey, I think the GoFundMe is the only way because if you, if you live in the Middle East, you can't start a GoFundMe. Um, you have to have someone do it in like America or some other countries. And so, you know, Ethan and I, we started to go fund me. We started talking to the advisory team. Hey, what do you guys think? Do you see this need? Do you get excited? And all across the board, they're like, man, I see this as a need. And we get excited. 
And we are believing this promise. Verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. I don't pretend to know how God will supply us. I just am confident that it will be his riches and his glory, and we at the end of it will say, Amen. Because in the most unlikely thing that would bring riches to humanity was a brutal death. And he proved that from the, the gruesome events of that, we would look at that peace, that cross, that execution place, and we would find hope and love. And we remember that every week when we take communion. We remember that Christians, the body of Jesus was broken for us to bring a new body, the church body, to make us alive that we would have the Holy Spirit. So we remember his broken body. Oh gosh, this is difficult. In church family, whom I love, the blood of Jesus was poured out for your life. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I pray that you would help us communicate clearly as we should, but over the next several weeks, um, Lord, we would find more information about how and when and what you're asking us to do individually and corporately. And Lord, even just thinking about partnering uh, with the gospel to a place that I feel like you've drawn our hearts uh, to Turkey. Lord, I pray that you would show us what to do individually. Lord, I pray that we would have a kingdom ethic, that the kingdom of God is far bigger than what we see right here of what we can touch, that it's a gospel to proclaim around the world. And Lord, the gospel that we have started in that part of the world, and what a glorious honor that we can give back to it. And so, so Christians in the room, like right now, this is all I'm asking you. You can go to the website um, and you can read about it. I'm just asking you to start praying. God, are you leading me to give in some sacrificial way to this to secure uh, the work that's been done in Fetier, Turkey? That's all I'm asking right now. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about it just at the beginning. Ethan's gonna give some direction just at the end. Just asking, would you start to pray about it? Father, Lord, we love you. And we need you. And we trust your promises that you're able to supply every good thing from your glorious riches in a way that at the end of it we say, Amen. In Jesus' name, Amen.